April 20, 2004, Jackson County Courthouse, Kansas City, Missouri. Lorenzo J. Gilliard, Jr. is charged with 12 counts of first-degree murder in the strangling deaths of 12 Kansas City women. The dates of the killings range from 1977 through 1993. The prosecutor announces he will seek the death penalty. Gilliard is held at the county jail without bond. Listeners, welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. This week, our case is the Kansas City Strangler, Lorenzo Jerome Gilliard Jr., who is associated by DNA with at least 13 murders. I confess, never heard of him before. Maybe because I've never been very interested in serial killers. On a lot of my favorite podcasts, I even skip those episodes most of the time. Gotta say, This case opened my eyes. I'm really interested in serial killers now. I spent a couple of sleepless nights looking at books on the subject. I'll put some recommendations in the show notes. For this case, I used the Kansas City Star articles about the case. The usual Good crime reporting from their guys, uh, Mark Morris, Richard Espinoza, Joe Lamb. It's L-A-M-B-E, so that might be Lambie. Tony Rizzo and John Schultz. I think I got all of them there. It's a very big case, so a lot of people worked on it. And I looked at articles from the Associated Press reports, from Heather Hollingsworth. Those I read in the Springfield, Missouri News Leader. 
Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Listeners, I talked about 16-year-old Terry Allen and her murder last week. If you haven't listened to that episode, you don't need to go back and listen to it now to know what's going on in this episode. This week's case involves one of the rabbit holes I went down while researching Terry's cold case. In the 70s and 80s and 90s, really up to this day, there are quite a few strangling deaths of women in Kansas City. It's thought that several serial killers may be responsible for this violence. Most of the deaths are of female prostitutes. That's often the case with serial murderers. James Allen Fox, a criminal justice professor at Northeastern in Boston, is quoted in the Kansas City Star, quote, prostitutes are the number one target of serial killers for a number of reasons. One is their accessibility. For a few bills and maybe for drugs, she'll get into his car. Number two is a killer can cruise and kind of window shop for a woman who fits his fantasies, unquote. The late great true crime writer Anne Rule said, Anne Rule is the author who worked with Ted Bundy on the suicide hotline in Seattle before anyone knew he was a serial killer. Quote, they pick very vulnerable victims. They pick women, children, transients. I've yet to find a serial killer who's killing professional football players. They want someone they can control, unquote. Typically, serial killers have many things in common. In the late 60s, there was a small study done entitled The Threat to Kill that looked at behavior factors with respect to possibly being able to predict violent behavior. That would be the famous McDonald triad that you hear about, bedwetting, setting fires, and animal abuse pointing to serial killer tendencies. The early profilers, the famous guys such as John Douglas and Robert Ressler, did give some credence to this idea. However, even Dr. McDonald points out that it was a small study and follow-ups have shown that it was largely inconclusive as far as being predictive. Nevertheless, arson and animal abuse are certainly red flags, behavior that really should get intensive therapy. In recent years, other red flags are being a victim of child abuse as well as serious head injury. As far as these red flags go, I don't know if the serial killer in our case, Lorenzo Gilliard, ever showed any of these signs. However, in other ways, he's a fairly typical serial killer and has a pattern that's revealing. 
Serial killers often live fairly normal lives. They have no trouble dividing people into two categories. Easily targeted strangers are those you kill. While family, friends, co-workers, you don't kill. Gilliard has a family, wives, children, and friends. Putting together what I've read, I think his childhood is turbulent, possibly abusive. His father serves time for rape. His brother, Darrell, is currently serving life without parole for a murder related to a drug deal. Five years of torture is how Gilliard's first wife, Rena, describes her marriage to Gilliard, which began in 1968 after she gets pregnant. The couple meet at Manuel High School in Kansas City, Missouri. Nowadays, the main campus of Manuel High School is located at 1215 East Truman Road, with another campus near East High School at 1924 Van Brunt Boulevard. If you know the Kansas City area, this is a very high crime area still today. Manuel has always been a vocational high school. The official name is now Manual Career and Technical Center. I've usually heard it called Manual Votech. Essential, essentially, at least in the States, Votechs are designed to give students technical applied training for careers in various fields like auto repair, construction, cosmetology, primarily designed for students who aren't likely to be college bound. Manual was one of the first schools in the Kansas City area to desegregate. However, with white flight to the suburbs, it was almost all black again by the time Lorenzo and Rena go there. In the 1968 yearbook, Lorenzo is a junior. That's a year behind where he should be. He's born in 1950, so if he went to school on schedule and completed his work, he should have been a senior by then. So I'm guessing probably not the best student and didn't graduate. He marries Rena November of 1968, so they probably both dropped out then. In his yearbook picture, he looks really sweet. Little young for 18, really. Um, shy smile. Rena says that he's very nice and lots of fun when she meets him. I can see that. However, as Rena tells it, after they marry, things are very different. Quote, he beat me and raped me. He threatened me and said he'd kill me. He loves nice things, pretty things, but you can't use them. He made me live in one room, the bedroom, for five years, unquote. Truly a hellish marriage. Obligatory, not an expert in psychology, but I'll do a little analysis here. 
this is a pattern in relationships that turn abusive. All sunshine and roses during the courtship, and then the abuser's perverted need for control and power makes the abuse of the vulnerable partner just keep getting worse. Lorenzo Gilliard's not a powerful man. If he does honest work, it's in menial jobs that don't pay much. He has a wife and child. Actually, they're married five years, likely children to support. Lorenzo Jerome Gilliard Jr. wants to live in style, but he can't do that working honest jobs. Instead, he starts working on his life of crime, burglary, probably drugs and other stuff. He is arrested many times for violent crimes, even accused of rape. But as far as I can tell, he doesn't do any real prison time until the 80s. But listeners, I would not be surprised if he didn't start committing murders in the early 70s, although the first murder he's charged with goes back to just 1977. Even though in his 20s, Lorenzo is in and out of trouble with the law, he finds time, lucky for the world, to father 11 children by various wives and girlfriends. I want to be judgmental about these various wives and girlfriends. I'm almost the same age as Lorenzo Gilliard, and I know that birth control is a thing in the 70s. Condoms could be bought at any drugstore, and they weren't expensive. Certainly not as expensive as a baby. And after he fathered, say, the eighth child, and he's not even 30, what woman or girl would want to be in a relationship with this guy? I'm thinking a woman with really low self-esteem. And Gilliard's probably charming and good at hiding his past and what he's really like. So I'll temper the judgment and just be sad for these women and especially the children. Let's hope they all recovered from having Lorenzo Gilliard as their baby daddy and even worse, their daddy. There's an interesting little rabbit hole concerning his half-sister, Patricia Diane Dixon. She's eight years younger than Lorenzo. No idea if she and her brother are personally close or not. I do know she also has a violent record. She's arrested for two murders. One, a customer. She's a prostitute. And one, a fellow prostitute. She served about 10 years in prison. I couldn't tell from the correctional records, but I think at the Missouri Women's Correctional Facility in Chillicothe, Missouri. Although 
a lot of women also serve time at a facility in Vandalia, Missouri. Chillicothe is a couple of hours north of Kansas City. Vandalia is way to the east, almost to Illinois, so several hours away from Kansas City. Usually with serial killers, there is an escalating pattern of crime. Not always, but often budding serial killers, especially when a sexual motivation is shown, go from crimes like peeping Tom to burglary to rape to murder. Gilliard's record does show a pattern of assaults and burglaries, when he's young, he does some time in prison in the 80s. Then Lorenzo appears to turn things around in 1986. He gets out of prison and gets a job with Deffenbaugh Waste Management. That's the major trash collecting service in the Kansas City metro area. He works his way up from the back of a garbage truck to supervisor. He lives in a comfortable middle-class neighborhood in the 8300 block of Kenwood Avenue. That's in South Kansas City. If you know Kansas City, kind of the Waldo area, a nice older neighborhood. He is in a stable marriage for years and in that job with Deffenbaugh for over 18 years. All this time, except when he's in jail, he also commits the occasional murder, but doesn't get caught. Remember, his cases range from 1977 to 1993, the ones he's actually charged with. However, it's likely that his last murder was committed at least a decade before he gets arrested. This does happen with serial killers. There are serial killers who never get caught. And it's theorized that some of them just stop for some reason. Maybe they get older, or they get scared they'll get caught, or they get caught for something besides murder and get put in jail, or their life situation changes. Dennis Rader, the self-style bind, torture, kill, BTK murderer from Wichita, quit murdering for, I think, 20 years. Of course, he started up again and got caught, but the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, who was caught just last year in 2018, apparently didn't commit any more rapes and murders after 1986. Both these guys lived the life of normal middle-class dads. Serial murders usually follow a pattern, same type of victim, same manner of death, same geographical location. All the victims in the Kansas City Strangler case are known to 
B Street prostitutes, except one, who was a mentally ill woman who lived on the streets much of the time. The victims are all fairly young, ages 15 to 36, most in their 20s. Some are white and some are black, and they don't look much alike, any of them, really. Gilliard isn't a large man, quite average, five foot nine or a hundred and seventy five centimeters and two hundred pounds or ninety kilos or for the Brits fourteen stone. The victims are fairly small women, easily overpowered. All are strangled some with their hands tied. Some are found nude, some are not. Some are sexually assaulted, but not all. While there is a pattern, just looking at the crimes, it's not necessarily clear that they all have the same perpetrator. If you heard last week's podcast, you know that they're were dozens of similar murders over the 70s and 80s in Kansas City. There have been many more since then. At one point, there was a theory there might be as many as six different serial killers operating in Kansas City, actually in a pretty small part of Kansas City, the downtown, midtown, and east side. So the idea that many serial killers operate in a geographical area where they feel comfortable works in the Gilliard case. He grew up in this high crime area we are talking about where most of the prostitution and drug activity occur. Little side note, the geography of crime is fascinating. I'm oversimplifying the methodology a lot in serial killer killings. If you map where the crimes occur and where the murderer lives, there's often a pattern. People commit crimes where they feel comfortable. If you apply the patterns and the probabilities This can possibly help law enforcement to narrow their focus. It's like psychological profiling. It's not perfect, but it at least gives law enforcement a place to start and some guidelines for what to look for. The definitive work on this subject is from Dr. Kim Rosmo. He's a distinguished criminology professor at Texas State University in San Marcos. That's between Austin and San Antonio. I remember listening to him talk with John Allure on his podcast, Who Killed Teresa? By the way, side note to this side note, that's a great podcast, a very serious one. Teresa Allure is murdered in 1978 in Quebec. John is her younger brother. He's haunted by her cold case. So early on, 
he started exploring the investigation and what went wrong, which was a lot. Later, he branched out into other cases in Quebec. In a nutshell, I see him using the podcast, and I think he has a book coming out next year to lead a crusade to reform law enforcement procedures in Quebec. In 1978, certainly, the situation was dire there, and I have the sense it hasn't gotten that much better. The case that really sticks out in my mind is one in which the victim is assaulted and the rapist actually calls emergency services to tell them where she is and says they need to come quickly or she'll die. Well, it's winter in Canada and nobody responds for a couple of days. Of course, the victim's dead. That case is just the tip of the iceberg as far as police scandals in Quebec and even the rest of Canada. Anyway, I highly recommend Who Killed Teresa? And I really admire the podcaster because he is so fearless in his pursuit of the truth. If you're really interested in a deep, deep dive into investigations, this is a podcast for you. As I said, it's very serious, pretty intellectual, not a lot of laughs in it. The website is www.teresaallure.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A. L-L-O-R-E dot com. Back to Kim Rosmo, the geographical profiler. He's also from Canada, where he did most of his early work in law enforcement. Lately, some of his research and techniques have been applied to looking at terrorist activity. Rosmo has two books, uh, Geographical Profiling from 2000 and Criminal Investigative Failures from 2009. They're criminology textbooks, but I think the writing is pretty accessible even to non-criminology majors. So I'll put the links in the show notes. Sorry, listeners, for the sidetracks. I was saying that Gilliard did live in the area where most of the victims were found in this decades-old search for the stranglers of dozens of women in Kansas City. I don't know where he lived in 1986, but I would guess in the high crime area where most of the bodies are found. When he's arrested, He lives a bit away from that area in South Kansas City, but only about five, ten minutes drive away. After Lorenzo Gilliard is arrested, it's easy to see the pattern and connect the cases he is charged with. 
Are the cases Gilliard's charged with the only murders he commits? I sincerely doubt it. I think he commits murders periodically his whole adult life, although I do believe he tapers off and likely stops in the 90s. As I talked about last week, there are so many women murdered by strangulation over the years in Kansas City. Let me recap a little bit. Dozens of murders are identified by the police in 1990 that fit patterns. Several of these patterns fall right in line with the murders Gilliard is accused of. Same high crime area frequented by street prostitutes, strangulation, hands tied, bodies just dumped. A lot of these murders fit Gilliard's pattern, including the murder of 16-year-old Terry Allen in June 1983, although she's a perfectly innocent high school student, not a prostitute. The problem is that Gilliard is in prison at the time of Terry's murder and others. At least, I think so. I went through the Missouri Department of Corrections database for Gilliard's incarceration history. I'm pretty good with databases, but this one is confusing. There are dates listed with each action, sentencing date and probation date. That seems straightforward, but it's not. Sentencing date doesn't mean they immediately go off to prison. In some cases, bond can be posted pending appeals. Probation date, I think, is what we normally think of as a parole date. Plus, Gilliard has records with zeros in the sentencing date. Not sure what to make of that or some of the other fields either. The field definitions on this website are a little cryptic. Anyway, my best guess is he's in prison from 1982 to 1986. I didn't go through court records, but the reporters for the Kansas City Star did. Here's essentially what they say happened, and it's still a little confusing. In November 1981, Gilliard earned his first sentence to a state prison in Missouri when he was sentenced to four years for second-degree burglary. How much time he actually served was not clear. They are right about that. Why isn't it clear? A spokesman for the Missouri Department of Corrections was unavailable for comment. I bet they weren't. About six months after he was sentenced for burglary, police found the body of Margaret J. Miller. That is in May 1982. In court records, police said that DNA recovered from Miller's body matches that of Gilliard. He's out on bond when that murder occurs. Following a complaint from Wyandotte County authorities in 1983, Gilliard was sentenced to a Missouri prison for up to four years for making a bomb threat. Listeners, I still have questions. 
when did Gilliard really go to prison for good? Did he really stay there? What's the deal with this bomb threat? Is he making a bomb threat from prison? Honestly, I still wonder if he might not have been on the streets in 83 when Terry Allen was murdered. Doesn't sound like it, but I would love to know for sure. Have someone explain it really clearly to me. The newspapers don't seem to know either. I just hope the police do. Okay, let's move on to what leads to Gilliard's arrest in 2004 for 12 murders, dating from 1977 through 1993. In 1987, Gilliard is back in Kansas City working for the trash company, apparently on the straight and narrow. However, he does have a connection to one of a series of similar murders that year. He is one of many suspects in the cases, and he agrees to give a blood sample. Along with many others, that blood sample sits at the Kansas City Police Crime Lab until the early 2000s when DNA technology catches up with evidence collected at the scene of many, many Kansas City murders. KCPD receives a grant from the federal government to test evidence from cold cases. They get started going through evidence, collecting DNA, comparing evidence with samples. This all takes time, but the work pays off when 12 cases are tentatively linked by DNA found on victims. I wondered if it might be touch DNA, but it's too early for that. Those techniques aren't available until about 2003, at least according to what I read in Scientific American. The DNA they have is from semen, saliva, and hair, not touch DNA. In routine testing of stored blood samples, Gilliard is found to be a match to two of the cases. The police already knew the DNA from the same person is on those two victims, but they don't know who that person is. The grant and new matching techniques finally tell them who that person is, Lorenzo J. Gilliard, Jr., a nondescript sanitation worker who's not been on police radar for years. It takes a little longer to link his DNA to 10 more victims. A few months later, right before the trial, the DNA found on a 13th victim is matched to Gilliard. The trial of the Kansas City Strangler begins March 5, 2007, at the Jackson County Courthouse in Kansas City, Missouri. Gilliard is charged with 13 murders. Initially, prosecutors planned to seek the death penalty for two of the cases because they are the only ones committed when the death penalty was in effect in Missouri. However, during pretrial negotiations, they agree to drop the death penalty if the defense will agree to waive rights to almost all possible appeals and agree to a bench trial. 
that's one with a jury, just a judge to determine guilt or innocence. That's probably a good deal for both sides. The defendant can't do worse than life without parole. Plus, it's a sensational case. Juries can be unpredictable in those cases. Bench trials tend to be more low-key. The attorneys aren't playing to a jury. Emotions don't run as high in the courtroom. Plus, DNA is usually all a jury needs to hear. If your defense is to question the DNA evidence, you're probably better off with a judge. By the time of the trial, six of the murder charges are dropped. The prosecution decides to try the seven cases with the most definitive DNA evidence. Those are Catherine M. Barry, 34, Naomi Kelly, 23, Anne Barnes, 36, Kelly A. Ford, 20, Angela Mayhew, 19, Sheila Ingold, 36, and Carmeline Hibbs, 30. The trial is mainly about DNA. Gilliard swears he's innocent and tells his relatives that his trial will come down to, quote, their scientists against my scientists. Essentially, the prosecution's case is that DNA shows that Gilliard had sex with all the victims except one shortly before their deaths. Gilliard is unstable and prone to violence against women. The victims are all killed in a similar manner and left in an area familiar to Gilliard and frequented by him. Upon his arrest, Gilliard denies knowing any of the women and he describes their cause of death as strangulation, even though the police have not told him that. Again, my advice to would-be murderers, lawyer up and shut up. The public defender counters that his client can't be expected to remember these women so many years ago. He contends that the DNA cannot show when Gilliard had sex with the women. The DNA from the single hair found on a victim's sweater is not probative because the sweater has dozens of other hairs on it that don't belong to Gilliard. Good point, actually. Then he argues that the victims all lived high-risk lifestyles, so lots of other people could have murdered them. To bolster this, he points to the many similar murders over the years that his client is not connected to in any way. Finally, as to knowing the victims were strangled, Gilliard learns that from talking with a friend who was a relative of one of the victims. Good points all. Experts testify that Gilliard's DNA matches the only semen found in each of the first three victims, Catherine Berry, Naomi Kelly, and Ann Barnes. All are strangled, nude, with their hands showing signs of struggle. Barry is struck on the head and strangled with black pantyhose. 
Kelly with strips of a towel, Barnes with a ligature that was not left at the scene. The expert estimates from the amount of intact sperm found in the bodies that the women likely died within a few hours of having sex with Gilliard. Kelly Ford, victim number four, is also found nude except for a sock on her right foot. Besides Gilliard's semen inside her, the police also had obtained a saliva sample, which also matches Gilliard's DNA. The saliva is not as strong an indicator as the semen, but the expert states that if Kelly had put her clothes on after the saliva was deposited, the DNA wouldn't have been there. The fifth Fifth victim, Angela Mayhew, is found clothed, except she's barefoot. Unlike the other four, she has her hands tied, and there's no semen found. She's beaten before she's strangled. Gilliard's DNA is matched to a hair found on her sweater, among many others that don't belong to Gilliard. Sheila Ingold is the sixth victim. She is found in an old van it was an abandoned one in the 3700 block of Troost Avenue, part of this whole bad neighborhood. She's also nude and has Gilliard's semen on her. The medical examiner testifies that Sheila was strangled or suffocated. The defense attorney hotly contests this. He says that his expert will testify that she could have died from an overdose of methadone. Apparently, she was taking methadone for her heroin addiction, but often traded the methadone for crack. This lowers the tolerance for methadone, so even a regular dose could be dangerous. The medical examiner sticks to her guns. The DNA expert also testifies that saliva from someone other than Gilliard was collected from Sheila's body. The defense points out that someone besides Gilliard likely had sexual contact with her. Listeners, the defense is trying, and I think of the seven, this case is pretty weak, but Gilliard only needs to be convicted of one of the murders to be sentenced to life without parole. The last victim, Carmeline Hibbs, is found clothed but shoeless. She is also strangled, and Gilliard's semen is found inside her body. The defense points out that Carmeline had had informed on a drug dealer just days before she was murdered. They keep trying. In closing arguments, defense attorneys emphasize that Gilliard's DNA on the bodies proves nothing with regard to the act of murder. It only proves sexual contact. They make the point that the judge should weigh each case individually. They reiterate the other explanations for the women's death. Sheila Ingle may have died of a drug overdose. A not terribly reliable witness testified that she saw two men the night of the murder, neither Gilliard, carrying Sheila in her underwear to a car. Naomi Kelly 
once told police that her pimp was threatening to kill her. He had scratches on his arms when police talked to him after the murder. Ann Barnes had a pimp who often beat her, and Carmeline Hibbs was a drug snitch. The defense really, I think, does a good job trying to introduce reasonable doubt wherever they can. Spoiler alert, it won't be enough. The prosecutors say, quote, The odds of some unknown person shadowing the defendant and killing those women immediately after he had sex with them defies logic and is ridiculous. Taken separately, there may be some small room for argument, but when you add them together, the odds for coincidence become astronomical. Either he's the most notorious serial killer in Kansas City, or he's being shadowed by the most notorious serial killer. He has the bad luck that when he has sex with someone, they turn up dead, unquote. Before he announces the verdict, Judge O'Malley gives a long speech. My guess is that everyone in the courtroom could figure out how things would go when he called the murders, quote, obscene insults to our sense of justice, security, and freedom, unquote. He finds Lorenzo Gilliard guilty as charged on six of the seven murders, all except Angela Mayhew. Concerning her case, O'Malley cited that no semen was found on her body and she wasn't sexually assaulted. He did think it suspicious that Gilliard's hair was on her sweater, while Gilliard denied ever even knowing Mayhew or even seeing her. Quote, to the best of his knowledge, unquote. But the judge found Gilliard not guilty of that particular crime. Quote, the evidence presented leaves me only suspicious that the defendant killed Miss Mayhew. Since I'm not firmly convinced, I find that the state has not met its burden with regard to this count, unquote. The only possible sentence is six consecutive sentences to life without parole. At sentencing, Judge O'Malley said Gilliard has, quote, forfeited any right to live out here among the rest of us. I want Mr. Gilliard to get up every day for the rest of his life, look in the mirror, and say, this is what I've done. That's why I'm here, unquote. With that, Gilliard was taken to Missouri Western Prison in Cameron, Missouri, where he is to this day. Listeners, I don't have much wild speculation. Is it possible that Gilliard is innocent? I don't think so. I agree with the prosecution's reasoning. Anything is possible, of course, but not likely. What I think might be likely is that Gilliard's responsible for more murders. Maybe in some cases he didn't leave any DNA or the evidence wasn't handled properly. Reportedly, he lived in Las Vegas for a time. There may be murders out there that he committed. 
As far as I'm concerned, he's right where he belongs. He still insists he's innocent. There's a story about an interview by Pierce Morgan with Gilliard in prison. That's in the Sun tabloid newspaper. There's also a video of the interview on YouTube. I'll put the links in the show notes. It's a very revealing interview. Mostly it reveals that Gilliard is kind of a whiny crybaby. For the most part, the families of the victims are pleased with the verdict, even those of the six victims that Gilliard wasn't prosecuted for. The prosecutor never did try Gilliard on the six cases that weren't presented at trial. The defense, as far as I can tell, never went through with any appeals. I personally, I think they did as good a job as they could considering the circumstances. Putting myself in the family's place, at least trying to, I think I would be okay with what happened. I hope that's the case for all those who cared about the victims. I've talked a lot about murder so far, but not much about the victims. In serial cases, it's so easy to lump all the victims together and forget they were each unique and special to their families and friends. After Gilliard's arrest, the Kansas City Star obviously hit the streets and burned up the phone lines trying to find families and friends to tell them about their loved ones. This is what they found. It's truly heartbreaking. Stacy L. Swafford. She was a young girl who was lost. The last time her parents saw Stacy L. Swafford, 17, alive, was Easter 1977. She had left home several months before and was living on the streets of Kansas City as a prostitute. She also died on the streets as a prostitute. Her body was found April 17, 1977, face down in a vacant lot near 45th Street and Euclid Avenue. Georgine Swafford died never knowing who killed her troubled child, a family member said. Her biological father was not in the picture, and her stepfather, Thomas Swafford, also has died. Georgine Swafford, in her mid-fifties, was inconsolable after her daughter's death and died at home in 1994 of acute alcohol poisoning, said a family member. She was at peace with her death, knowing she would see her daughter in heaven. Gwendolyn Kazine. Of the women Gilliard is charged with killing, Gwendolyn Kazine was the youngest. She was 15 when her body, clothed but without shoes, was found January 23, 1980, against a building behind 1312, the Paseo. Her father had reported her missing just one day before, despite the fact he hadn't seen her in more than a week. Police said she had been working as a prostitute on Troost Avenue. She's 15. Her brother Earl Kazine, who lives in Kansas City, said 
that it was difficult to talk about his baby sister, Gwen. She was a lot of fun, Kazin recalled. She had a lot of friends. Newspaper articles at the time said Kazin attended the Evangelistic Center Church. Kazin remembered her hanging out with her friends, playing pool and dancing at a community center near their home in the 3500 block of Bales Avenue. He said Gilliard's arrest bought clarity to the lack of information surrounding his sister's death. Quote, I'm happy they found him, but it brought up old feelings of hurt and pain, things I didn't want to talk about. Unquote. Margaret J. Miller. Not much is known about Margaret June Miller, who was 17 when her body was found in a field near 37th Street and Garfield Avenue on a Sunday afternoon in 1982. She was a lifelong area resident, according to an obituary, but detectives at the time were unable to find her family. She hadn't been living at home for a while, an officer said then. Police said they had been unable to find any relatives to tell them of Gilliard's arrest. A teenage boy found Miller's body on May 9, 1982, in an area with high weeds. Police reports indicate that her underwear and a bra with a key attached were not recovered. Police said Miller sometimes worked as a prostitute on Troost Avenue. Catherine M. Bailey Catherine Barry gave up hope, but she never lost faith. After slipping into mental illness, which family members believe was hereditary, following the birth of her third child, Barry descended into a life on Kansas City's downtown streets. Her sister, Tricia Southern, thinks Barry was walking to Mass when she encountered her killer. She went every day, Southern said. Barry's body was discovered March 14, 1986, covered with leaves, in an abandoned building near 30th and Central Streets. Barry, the oldest of 10 children, was 34. We've waited for so long for this day, Southern said. You never close something like this. I've missed a sister. My kids have missed an aunt. We didn't think about it all the time, but something was already there. Trisha said her sister was a loving mother, full of life, until her breakdown after the birth of a child. She spent nights in a homeless shelter, walked the streets, and accepted rides with strangers. Another sister, Cheryl Cornwall of Tracy, Missouri, said she remembered going to the morgue to identify her dead sister, who was found with her rosary beads around her neck. Cornwell said her now-deceased mother used to go to the police department every year on the anniversary of Barry's death to ask what new information or leads police had. Barry's former husband, Timothy Charles Barry, who now lives in Blue Springs, said losing the mother of his children to such violence is a pain that never goes away, but maybe now it will. Naomi Kelly. Naomi Kelly was a 23-year-old single mother of two when she was strangled on August 16, 1986, and her body dumped in a seedy downtown Kansas City park. Older sister Bessie Kelly said, 
Naomi was a quiet person who kept to herself. Younger sister Annette Kelly said their father did not approve of Naomi's lifestyle. Police said she was a prostitute. She was attending a business school in downtown Kansas City. She was taking business courses and trying to better her life for herself and her two children. Bessie Kelly recalled. Annette Kelly remembers when the police came to her parents' home and said they found Naomi's body in Margaret Kemp Park at 10th and Harrison Streets. She was a sweet, nice lady, Annette Kelly recalled. Quote, I knew this day would come. That may sound crazy after all these years, but I never gave up hope of them finding the guy that did this, unquote. Annette Kelly said her mother and father, both deceased, now can rest in peace. Debbie Blevins' sisters, Pam Bell of Kansas City and Jenny Fensom of Lean Summit, went to the news conference held by the prosecutors. Bell dabbed her eyes with a tissue while Fensom's expression was firm. Quote, my mom died a year ago, Bell said. She always wanted to find out who did this, so it came a little late. I was always hopeful. I think patience, persistence, and prayer finally paid off, unquote. A detective went to visit Bell's mother, Betty Cummings, on Thursday, not knowing that she had died. Cummings' brother-in-law, who lived next door, happened to be outside working on his truck. The detective explained that police were about to make an arrest in Blevins' murder. Bell was on a trip to Las Vegas and didn't learn of the development until she returned to Kansas City on Sunday. Since then, memories of Blevins' sad history have come back. We were close, Bell said. She got mixed up in drugs, and that was the downfall of her. Blevins was 32 when she was strangled and her body dumped in bushes in front of the Hyde Park Christian Church at 38th and Wyandotte Streets. She had no clothes on when she was found except a pair of pink socks. It was Thanksgiving, 1986. Her family saw it on the news that night, but didn't know it was Blevins until the next day. She left a nine-year-old daughter, who now has two children of her own. Ann Barnes' body was found April 17, 1987, ten years to the day after Gilliard's first alleged victim was found. Barnes, 36, was a housekeeper at St. Mary's Hospital, when it was located on Main Street. She was an exotic dancer at an establishment farther south on Main. Police said she also was a prostitute. She may have had a daughter, according to a man who lived across from Barnes' residence at 3030 Grand Avenue. Burton Madison has lived at 3029 Grand Avenue for 26 years and vividly recalled Barnes and her boyfriend. They used to put on some pretty noisy parties in the evening. She was the only neighbor who ever created any kind of disturbance in the neighborhood, he said. Police have been unable to find Barnes' relatives. Madison estimated that her dark-haired daughter was 7 to 10 years old in 1987. Kelly A. Ford. Two years after she graduated from high school, Kellyanne Ford was dead strangled and abandoned in Kansas City's Roanoke Park. 
a woman walking her dog found Ford's body at the foot of a bluff on June 9, 1987. She was nude except for a white sock on her right foot. She had a silver cross earring on her left ear and needle marks in her left arm. Ford 20 was a prostitute who worked on Main Street, police said. She was born in Warrensburg, Missouri, and had lived there until she moved to Kansas City in 1985, the year she graduated from Warrensburg High School. She was a Methodist. At the time of Ford's death, her father was living in Texas while her mother and brother remained in Warrensburg. Police have been unable to find them. Angela M. Mayhew's body was found September 12, 1987, face down on the side of the road at 26th and Genesee Streets. Hairs were recovered from her turquoise sweater, which police later used to connect her death to the others. She was wearing gray slacks, and police found no evidence of sexual assault. Police said the 19-year-old woman had been convicted for prostitution. No obituary appeared in the newspaper, and Kansas City police officers said her immediately, immediate next of kin were deceased. Sheila Ingold, she always wore a gold ring on her left pinky and a silver wedding ring with a fake diamond on her left ring finger. Both rings were gone when Sheila Ingold's body was found on November 3, 1987 in a parked van at 3740 Troost Avenue. Police said Ingle, 36, worked as a prostitute on Troost Avenue. Detectives were unable to reach any relatives before Monday's news conference. A woman contacted by the Kansas City Star described herself as Ingle's former mother-in-law. She was walking the streets when she died. That's all we know, the woman said. We hadn't heard nothing all these years about what happened. The woman said Ingle was a beautiful girl who grew up in Arkansas. After Ingle married the woman's sons, the couple had three children. They later divorced, and Ingle's former husband died before Ingle's murder. Quote, I raised her kids. I guess they turned out better than she did, the woman said. Carmeline R. Hibbs. The body of Carmeline Hibbs, 30, was found in a second-story parking lot at 3560 Broadway on December 19, 1987. She was clothed but missing her shoes. Police said Hibbs worked as a prostitute on Main Street. Her obituary said she attended Assumption Catholic Church and was a lifelong Kansas City resident. It said she had a daughter who lived in Las Vegas with Hibbs' mother. Relatives could not be reached for comment. Connie Luther. Lucinda Soria remembers the last time she talked to her 29-year-old sister, Connie Lynn Luther. It was early January 1993, and Luther, who had gotten mixed up in the drug scene, called Soria and asked her for a ride home. Soria recalled that she asked where she was so she could pick her up. Luther said, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. She never called.
Luther's body was found in a snowdrift at 25th Street and Allen Terrace. Soria, who now lives in Florida, said her sister had attended Milburn Junior High School, now Antioch Middle School in Overland Park, but never made it to high school. Police said she worked as a prostitute on Main Street. Her obituary listed a son, Michael Joseph Burris, of Excelsior Springs. Soria said Luther loved her son more than anything. But Soria and her mother raised Michael because of Luther's lifestyle. When Luther died, the boy's father took him in. Soria said Luther was among five children, being raised by a single mother who did the best she could. Their mother died the year before Luther was found murdered. Quote, she was a good person who got caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. She was always a good person, unquote. The last victim, Helder Kruger's life, is something of a mystery. She came to the United States from Austria in the mid-80s and lived in Florida, possibly in the Miami area, before she moved with an unidentified man to Kansas City in 1987, according to detectives. At the time of her death, she lived in the 3700 block of Flora Avenue. A person in Austria whom police contacted before about her death in 1989 can no longer be found. According to Kansas City Municipal Court records, Kruger was convicted twice of soliciting for immoral purposes, the last time just two weeks before her death. Helga was found with a paper towel wedged in her mouth, and there were ligature marks around her neck. Her body also had extensive bruising and abrasions, according to court documents. As in other cases, authorities linked Gilliard to Kruger's death through DNA tests. If you have any information about the relatives of the victims that couldn't be contacted, or any of the items that were found, really anything to do with the victims or the cases, you can call the TIPS hotline in Kansas City at 816 816- Four seven four eight four seven seven. That's eight one six four seven four eight four seven seven, and I'll put that in the show notes. I didn't get a chance to try to run down the graves and yearbooks and other stuff about all the victims. I will try to do that sometime. For now, I'll put a list on the website of the victims and their ages and when the bodies were found in case anybody out there wants to do some research. If you find anything, I'd love to hear from you. As far as I can tell, Gilliard's half-sister Patricia Dixon is staying out of trouble. She's been on parole in Kansas City, as far as I can tell, for a long time. Let's hope she turned her life around. It happens. Lorenzo Gilliard's wife, Jackie, divorced him right after he was arrested. He's not having an easy time in prison. He complains of beatings by other inmates. Oh, boo-hoo. Let's hope the victims are able to feel some resolution with the measure of justice they received in the courts. I have a strong faith in God, and I believe Gilliard will be perfectly judged when he meets his maker. And unless God knows something we don't, I don't think that will be pleasant for Lorenzo Gilliard. In my faith, we believe that murderers are cast into what's called outer darkness. I also have faith 
that our victims are in God, God's hands now. And that's a good place to be. As I said, I mainly used articles in the Kansas City Star newspaper for this case. I have an online subscription for the more recent articles there at www.kansascity.com. I access the older articles on, I think, oh, it's either newspaper archives or genealogybank.com. Finally, as always, I googled and wikied and went through genealogy sites. There are links in the show notes. I also put the phone number for the cold case squad out there, too. A quick Google shows several podcasts have already done this story. Serial Killers, Crime in Color, uh, Mo True Crime, that's M-O, like the abbreviation for Missouri, I hadn't heard of these before, but you might want to give them a listen. And there might be other podcasts that have done this too. I don't remember hearing about it, but that could have been an episode I skipped on some of my favorites. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends. If you could leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blueberry, without the E's, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, net. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars. Mm-hmm.